Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management, online fundraising, and volunteer management software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron. After just one year with Boomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear their experience or visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising. Using data to monitor how donors respond. That's one of the ways that we can kind of evolve our understanding of who our donors are, what they care about, and how we can message them more effectively. Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is brought to you by our friends at DonorPerfect. Today, I'm interviewing Tim Kachuriak. Tim is the Chief Innovation and Optimization Officer at Next After Institute, a company that leverages original research, evidence-based resources, and data-driven training to better understand your donors and why they give, so that you can raise more money online to fund your work. In this episode, we're pulling back the veil to tell you that no one is a fundraising expert. And this feels particularly important to say today, right after Giving Tuesday, when the chatter in your head might be spiraling at an all-time high. By dispelling this myth, we want to encourage you to trust your gut, take risks, test, and realize that your constant learning around fundraising is what matters, not being an expert. In this conversation, Tim offers fascinating thoughts about all the micro decisions that impact fundraising outcomes and how to keep donors motivated. And much of our conversation focuses on building humility and empathy into nonprofit fundraising culture, while also emboldening each of us in our mission to do good from a place of abundance rather than scarcity. Tim and I also explore what it looks like to use A-B testing, a powerful tool for quickly calling what's working versus what isn't in terms of metrics like email opens and click-throughs. And we consider the important upsides of failing. All of these themes are particularly important right now when you might be feeling discouraged, worried, or tired. This episode will give you new energy and insights, and perhaps even give you a new look on what to do between now and the end of the year and beyond. So let's dive in so you can meet Tim. Welcome, everyone. I'm so excited to be here today with Tim Kachuriak. Tim, welcome to What the Fundraising. Thank you, Mallory. It's great to be here. I am so excited for this conversation today. I love everything that you all do over at Next After, but why don't we just start with a little bit about your story and what brought you to the work that you're doing today and this conversation? We chatted a little bit before we hit record here, and it it sounds like we had a similar indirect pathway into Mm -hmm. the place where we currently reside in the middle of the nonprofit field of fundraising. So I graduated from college right after 9-11, which is like a horrible time to enter into a job force, and especially for somebody who wanted to work desperately in the field of advertising and marketing. But fortunately, I worked at a country club all during high school and college, so I had 432 aunts and uncles that were captains of industry, right? So like they're all members of the country club. And so I called Uncle Joe. He ran the second largest ad agency in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I grew up. He's like, man, I'd love to hire you, kid. But you know what? We just laid off 30 people yesterday. 9-11 hit our industry hard, agency harder. Can't help you. 
Mm. And so six months wandering in the wilderness, met a serial entrepreneur. He said, look, I've got all these little businesses. Maybe you could do some freelance projects. I said, that sounds great. And then he's like, well, why don't you start a business? And I was like, well, I don't know how to do that. And he's like, well, I do. We've got an incubator on the second floor of our office building. I'll be your partner. I'll give you a desk, introduce you to people. And the rest is up to you, kids. So I did that for the first five years, started a, a general kind of like marketing company. Basically, I'll do anything that pays money. I mean, within mm. reason and that's legal. And then we kind of gravitate more towards digital marketing. And so did a lot of that kind of stuff. Five years in, loved what I was doing. Wasn't really excited about the clients we were working with. Not that they were bad, but mm. a lot of car dealers and law firms and things like that. So my church was doing a capital campaign to build a new building. And I said, well, I can volunteer to help out with that. And it was like the first time I was doing something that I felt like I was wired to do, which is marketing, but for a cause, right? That mm. I cared about. And so then after that, I was like, well, I can't go back and make car dealership websites anymore. End up selling my business, moving from Pittsburgh to Fort Lauderdale, went to work for a nonprofit, found out that there's basically marketing agencies that work with nonprofits, went to work for one in Dallas. And then in that time, I just became obsessed with like trying to understand how do we optimize fundraising? And that's kind of what mm -hmm. I do today. I love that story. And it actually immediately brings me to this question, which is how do you view the relationship between marketing and fundraising? What is that Venn diagram look like for you? I know that a lot of organizations tend to silo those two different functions. We've got our marketing comms group over here. We've got our fundraising group over here. And like they're at war with each other oftentimes. Mm -hmm. And so what I'll do is kind of bring those two groups together and say, look, let's do a goal stacking exercise, right? So let's go and like, you tell me all the things you need, marketing comms folks. Well, I need uh, eyeballs. I need to go like find ways to reach people. I'd like to get people that subscribe. Like I want engagement, things like that. And I said, okay, Mr. Fundraiser, Mrs. Fundraiser, what would you like? And they're like, I also need eyeballs and I want subscribers too, but I also need names, donors, and dollars. We're like, look, you guys have things in common, right? We can actually work mm. together, not apart. And so I don't tend to separate them as much as some of our clients do. And I think that there's cool ways to create overlap. And I know there's, there's different audiences and things that we can reach, but we have one budget as a nonprofit. And the more that we start to splinter that off, then like the less total reach that we have in the marketplace. So that's why I try to do is bring those two groups together. I love that. And I actually didn't want to leave you too much on the question, but I was sort of hoping you were going to say what you said, because I really agree. And one of the things that I've been exploring a little bit is here in fundraising a lot, we don't want fundraising to be transactional. Right. But then we separate all of the elements of fundraising that the moments where the money is not moving into the organization, we call it other things, communications, right. marketing, we silo it, we put it in these other things. And so we kind of dwindle down the fundraising department or person or whatever to be doing only the transactional work. And so if a nonprofit is maybe growing and they're at a point of deciding, do they have a marketing person and a fundraising person? And I'm also not a fan of giving one person a billion hats and not paying them for all of their work. <laughs> so I'm not suggesting that, but do you have any advice for how a nonprofit could think really maybe creatively and have the most effective, cohesive communication plan thinking about the different elements of that? Well, it kind of aligns with the point that you made. And so like what I would say, most people have the concept of the funnel clear in mind when they mm -hmm. think about like marketing or sales or even fundraising. And so the idea is that you try to like reach people through various different channels, through like search engines on the internet or email or direct mail or radio or TV, at least from a fundraising point of view, we're trying to consistently move these people from interest to involvement to investment. 
And to your point, oftentimes the marketing comm stuff is like the upper parts of that funnel. Mm -hmm. And then the fundraising is the bottom part of the funnel. We said, well, hold on a second. Why don't you flip the funnel upside down, right? Flip your perspective upside down because in reality, gravity is not working for you. Gravity is working against you. Meaning like the organic forces in the marketplace don't naturally lead people to want to give away their money, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't have like an active group of people that are Googling at this point right now today. Hey, I've got a lot of money. Where do I give it away? You know what I mean? That just doesn't happen, Mm -hmm. right? Not like you go to Google for like the things you want to buy or consume. And so we say, well, if you flip it upside down, it looks less like a funnel. It looks more like a mountain. And so we say, okay, well, what is our goal? Ultimately, I know that nonprofits don't like to ever think of themselves like as a business, but a nonprofit is a business. The nonprofit is like an IRS tax designation that says, instead of having shareholders and stakeholders that actually like take a dividend from the money that flows through the organization, all that money stays with the organization to go and do more impact, Mm -hmm. right? So it's just, it's a nonprofit, it's a tax status. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about it in that context, that a nonprofit is a business, well, what is their product? Well, their product is the impact, the social impact delivered Mm. through the organization and the customer is the donor, right? Mm. So separating the marketing comps thing just doesn't make sense in that context. It's all one, right? Mm. I mean, you could say it's marketing and sales, I guess, but I think the best organizations that I see on the for-profit side today don't try to create separation between marketing and sales. They try Mm -hmm. to make them one. But anyway, in this donor mountain kind of analogy, the goal is to get the donor, the customer to the ultimate macro yes, I want to give. But there's a series of micro yeses that they have to make along the way. So like I send an email, the goal for me is to get a donor to give an an email, but I need them to open. I need them to read. I need them to Mm -hmm. click. They click, they get a landing page. There's a whole new series of micro decisions that the potential donor makes as they navigate content, copy, images, video. And if it's compelling, if it's inspiring, they click the donate button and they have to still yet make a series of decisions, important decisions, even at that transaction state, right? Mm One-time gift, recurring gift. How much do I want to give? Do I want to designate? These are micro decisions. And so then what is it that we can do to help that donor on that journey up this mountain? As the fundraiser or marketer, you're standing at the top, right? What that means is like, we have a completely different perspective of that of our potential donor because we live and breathe this stuff every day. We can see the impact the organization's having Mm -hmm. in the field in the valley below, but the donor can't see it. And so like, we have to help them. And the thing that we can use to help them is our value proposition. I love it. Okay, wait, there's something that you just said that is triggering this thought in me. And I think this is what you're talking about too. So I had another guest on last season and we were talking about the science of motivation. And she talked about a common topic around motivation, which is this middle problem that motivation is high at the initial, but in the middle, there's this big dip. And when you were starting to describe the series of decisions that a donor has to make, it made me wonder, is that sort of the same thing that we need to be aware of? That there is potentially a middle problem between when they get to the top of that landing page and when they're finally clicking donate at the very end of all their information. And so how do we build in the motivational aspects around each of those micro decisions? I think the reason why that phenomenon exists is because like at the beginning stage of something, that's one kind of cognitive lever that we can pull, which is like newness or like this is an announcement that this big thing is happening. Mm. And then towards the end, we have a different cognitive lever that we're pulling, which is oftentimes urgency, deadline approaching, Mm. getting close to goal, bandwagon effects. So like there's different kind of cognitive levers we can use. And you're right. The middle part just kind of like, why do I even care? 
full disclosure, I'm very biased in this area, but this is why I think digital marketing and communications is so really powerful because we can cultivate those potential donors by using like content marketing and things where we're feeding them, we're taking them on their journey, we're engaging them in different things that they can do as they kind of go through that middle phase of giving a donation online. Mm. One of the things even learning about Next After kind of illuminated for me as not a digital fundraising expert or left, that's not the niche that I really fall into necessarily, but what I found to be so valuable for my work as well. And the way I talk about more of those one-on-one conversations is the research that you do and really can only do in the digital space around understanding how different elements of a campaign or a piece of of content or an email really shows the dramatic impact that made me so curious about what's happening in that moment where they just saw a 450% increase on an open or something like that, right. making that specific mm-hmm. one up. And so I'm curious, how did you, and all of your research is open source, which is also mm-hmm. amazing. And so I go there often just to sort of see what's being tested and what's happening. So for you, can you tell me a little bit about how that relates to this journey that you're talking about and why that research is so important. You said that like, I'm not a fundraising expert or you said I'm not a digital fundraising expert is what you said. And I would just say, same here. I'm not a digital Mm. fundraising expert. I'm not a fundraising expert. Nobody is. The only experts are the donors themselves. And so what we need to do is humble ourselves and put ourselves in a position where we can allow the donors to be the teachers of what works and what doesn't. And the way that we can study that, the way we can put them in a position of being a teacher is through testing and experimentation, by studying their behavior, what they communicate to us by what they do and what they don't do. One big kind of pet peeves I have is a lot of times fundraisers will look at metrics like our KPIs based on the things that we want. Like I want impressions, I want opens, Mm. I want clicks. And so I've got a click-through rate, I got an open rate, I've got a conversion rate or whatever. Mm. Oftentimes, if you invert those things, those are like, I don't care kind of metrics, right? Mm. So all the people that are saying yes to you, there's always so many more people that are saying no to you. So then you have to ask yourself the question, what do I change to get more people to say yes? I mean, that's all we're trying to do is basically engineer a series of yeses on that journey. Maybe just to back up, like, so your audience understands what I'm talking about when I say testing. So we do a lot of A-B testing. So if I get a hundred visitors to my website, I can make sure that every other visitor sees version A of the page versus version B. And then if I'm tracking what happens on that page and the number of people that convert or give a gift or how much they give, then I can compare the difference between both version A, the control and version B, the treatment. And then I can validate that if it's statistically valid, I can actually gain a learning from that experiment. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like what I'm referring to when I say A-B testing and experimentation. But that's why I love it is because I'm learning all the time. That's probably why you love it too. Yeah, definitely. And I had a friend who donated Facebook credit to me for ads Mm -hmm. and I used all of it to study copy and Mm -hmm. to just see how different types of ads performed, how different type of language resonated with people. And I think that point is really important around the fact that we get so in our heads around our perspective of our own organization and of our own work of what our board maybe is asking for on a KPI sheet that we don't step out of that. And I talk about this a lot on, I call them funder lenses. Like Mm. what does it take to actually put on the perspective of your donors and how different those can be in different moments for different groups at different decision points. And so I love that visualization. 
when you said that piece around, we're not experts. So I also really love that because I had a friend recently, another consultant in this space, talk about me as an expert and da da da. And I said, you know, I'm really uncomfortable with that terminology. I don't really feel like an expert. What I do is I ask really curious questions. I'm willing to try. I'm willing to think differently about something that isn't working and go outside of maybe the parameters of what we've historically done in this sector. But like, what does it mean to be like an expert? But like, what are the impacts to like the ecosystem around this sector if that belief is adopted more widely? First of all, I think you'd see a tremendous increase in two things, humility and empathy. I think those are probably the two most important skills for any fundraiser, marketer, or in general, right? So like humility and empathy. So what do I mean by that? Well, humility is saying, look, I don't know all the answers, especially people that have this expert label attached to them. They have all of this pressure on them. Like everybody's looking in the room like they have the answers to the questions. And we know deep down inside that we don't, right? Mm. And so we have to project all this like false confidence and like say, trust me, I'm a doctor or whatever. And sometimes like that leads to us leading our clients or our organizations or whatever astray. Whereas if we say, look, let's go and bring everybody together. Let's get a diverse group of perspectives on this issue. And let's kind of like Mm. get the best ideas on the table. There's different ways you can go sort through those ideas and prioritize them or whatever. But then let's get down to, okay, here's the two things we're going to test based off of this collaborative exercise. And then we're going to allow the data to tell us what works and what doesn't. That'll teach you a couple of things. Number one, that even as a group, sometimes you're wrong. You know what I mean? Like you're not the smartest people. But also it'll hopefully enable you to get more in touch with that idea of like allowing the donor to be the teacher, which is really what empathy is about, of like kind of like saying, I need to understand or put on, would you say the donor lenses? But I don't have donor lenses because I'm not a donor, but I can start to put on my donor lenses, which I would say is like analytics or data. It's like using data to kind of monitor how people Mm -hmm. that are the donors respond. And that's one of the ways that we can kind of evolve our understanding of who our donors are, what they care about, and how we can message them more effectively. I love all of that. And I think the other impact of that adoption of recognizing that nobody is the expert, I totally agree with you. I think it leads to a lot of imposter syndrome, actually, of consultants in this sector that Mm -hmm. ultimately holds back progress. And I also think that it would lead to marketing from the consultant, even like tech side in the sector, to be more value-based instead of leading with scarcity and urgency. Because I worry sometimes Mm -hmm. that the marketing we see to sell to nonprofits leads to a lot of their own imposter syndrome, a lot of their own fears. You know, when I was a fundraiser, I was sure I was bad at fundraising, even though the numbers were actually good. I was growing an organization from 300,000 to over 2 million. But I was like, I'm definitely bad at fundraising because there's no way that good fundraisers feel the way that I feel. There's Mm -hmm. no way that good fundraisers want to throw up before a major donor meeting or doubt themselves (laughs) when they're doing these things. When we project that, and a lot of the marketing comes across to tell you that, like you don't know enough. And so you need this one thing to be ready to go into that donor meeting. And I feel like that ultimately traps our sector a lot in more of that scarcity mindset and holds a lot of orgs back. I would agree with that. It causes a lot of organizations or fundraisers individually to look for like easy button, maybe technology companies or consultants or agents or whatever. They've kind of like, ah, they've kind of mm-hmm. seized upon that. They leverage that to your point, mm-hmm. kind of like twist the knife a little bit until you're like, oh, 
oh, make it stop. And so, <laughs> oh, you got the antidotes. Great. Let me, let me take the magic talisman or whatever. But that's never the case. And so everybody kind of like gets addicted to like the next and latest tool mm. or tactic or whatever. And they don't have time to focus on what they really need to do, which is like focus on strategy, right? Mm. And, and focus on like things like messaging. I liken it to like, okay, if I go buy a CRM system before I've actually gone and determined like my needs are as an organization, then it's like going and buying like all the supplies to build a house without like having plans first. Mm. You know what I mean? It's just like, it doesn't make sense. You would never do that. Mm. But we do that every day. So mm -hmm. I think that that's another outcome. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First T of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First T of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. Yeah. yeah, I agree. We're more reactionary in a lot of our decisions and we let other people tell us what we need instead of identifying what we need. I think that's a really important point. I think there's another piece to what you were saying before and that last sort of question that a lot of times the solutions provided to nonprofits in this sector are don't include a conversation around testing and failure and trying and learning and one of the reasons I appreciate what you all do so much, and especially around sort of the open source research on your site, is that you're obviously showing incredible metrics of success with things that you're trying. You can also see when something you guys tried with a client didn't work. And right. I'm curious if there's something that you've noticed with your clients around their sort of mindset around testing and failure. Like, right. what is that like? in this process. I think we're fortunate that fact that like a lot of like these big technology companies have kind of like almost like romanticized failure. It's like mm. failure is progress. You know, mm. I mean like, well, sometimes failure is just failure. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to mitigate risk, right? That's what testing is really all about. So you could say, well, gosh, I can't afford to change this thing because this has been working forever. And it's like, yes, but what if it's not as working as well as it could work, right? So, so almost by like not testing, you may be like leaving huge amounts of opportunity on the table and it's actually much more risky. Expecting everything to work over and over again the same way is insane because the world's mm -hmm. constantly changing, right? So if you don't test, then you're setting yourself up for significant failure. So that's really interesting because the testing that you guys do then is like a small population test before oh, yeah. the folks would apply that learning to their whole list or something like that. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. You're asking like, what's our theory of change when we kind of bring this into a nonprofit client that is very averse to change, right? Mm -hmm. We've learned this over time. So like, we'll kind of create this design of experiments. Like these are the things we're going to test. Some of those tests are ones that we're a hundred percent pretty sure it's going to work. Mm -hmm. We call those kind of like the low hanging fruit, the quick wins. These are things we've tested over and over and over again with other organizations. We could say, just do it, but you know what? We need to demonstrate the power of testing. So we kind of do that and you get some of these quick wins and some green arrows and it starts mm. to kind of like engulf the culture and everybody starts to get excited about testing the bigger and bolder things later, which mm. if you want transformation, you're going to have to go there. So we try to build credibility <laughs> for mm. testing by starting small with things that we are pretty certain are going to work. 
but you're right. Once we get into an engagement, like we may have a test and it's like very well researched. We've got all a great hypothesis and it just totally bombs. That means we were so off. We were going in this direction and we thought this was right, but we're totally wrong. So we get a boom, go in this direction now. So it can kind of redirect you. And if you're doing a test appropriately, you're not betting the farm. It's a limited time window. It's a certain amount of data mm. points you need to get statistical significance. And then you analyze the experiment and then you move on, right? So it's mm. it's about not just adopting wholesale change. Yeah, I hear you on the romanticizing of failure in the for-profit world. I feel like in the nonprofit world, most of the folks I work with are miles away from that. And failure feels like this incredibly scary concept, even failure around an email. I watch organizations send out emails with an 11% open rate, and they're terrified of change of what if it could lead to a 10% open rate. And it's like the upside is obviously so much greater than that. But the fear of that, of doing something wrong, mm -hmm. sort of controls their decision making. And I was just recently listening to something where someone was saying like, listen, the nonprofit industry was created to fail in many ways it was not created with shareholders and profit and all this stuff because right. we didn't want these organizations to be beholden to always doing better. We wanted them yeah. to test and try things. And I feel like when we're talking about changing the status quo, how on earth can we do that without some mm. failure? If we knew how to solve these problems, they would be solved. That's right. Fear of loss is, is definitely a very powerful motivator and can keep people kind of in bondage. That's kind of why we open source our whole research mm -hmm. catalog. So we've got 3,700 experiments from like some of the largest and even smallest organizations on the planet, right? Mm -hmm. That are doing testing. And look, that thing that we're recommending that we go try and test, look, it worked for this organization, this organization. Mm -hmm. Now we can't guarantee it'll work with us or else we would mm -hmm. just make the change, but we can test it and we can mm -hmm. see what the impact will be. So it's like, you know, leveraging other people's research can sometimes help and then honestly, like you'll run into situations where even bringing data to the table, even say you run an experiment and it gets a big lift in performance. Mm. And then the executive director or CEO or whatever is like, I don't care. I don't like it. You're just like, well, see you later. You know what I mean? <laughs> not, not, not my partner, not my kind of client. So, yeah. but that's rare that we run into that. Yeah. Okay. My next question is a little bit maybe long-winded to get to. And I'm not going to quote this experiment perfectly, so I'll find it and put it in the show notes for folks who are interested. But I was just listening to Seth Godin's podcast, and he was talking about this experiment they did with positive reinforcement tactics with dogs and how there was this certain type of dog training where folks were giving food or positive reinforcement like every few seconds, basically, to drive the dog's behavior. And that people were really resistant to this dog training method, not because it didn't work, but because it felt so manipulated. Mm -hmm. And what hit the point that he was trying to make is that so often we sort of want people to want to do the thing. And there's this great line in the breakup with like Jennifer Aniston, where she like screams at her husband, like, I want you to want to do the dishes. And he's <laughs> like, why would I want to do yeah. the dishes? We do that so much as humans. We want to believe that the other person wants to do the thing, even if we mm. don't so closely manipulate their behavior to yeah. do it. Talk to me about how that shows up in this work or if it does and what you think about that concept. Yeah. Earlier this year, we do like this innovation summit where we bring thought leaders together. And my topic was on these different like behavioral economics and things that you can kind of go do and put in play, like these different levers, cognitive levers you can pull. 
And at the end of that session, I said, you know, just because we can, mm-hmm. just because it works, should we? There's a fine line, I think, in my mind between persuasion and manipulation. Two different things, but there's sometimes like it's hard to decipher which is which. So, you know, behavioral science and like philanthropic psychology, there's all these different ways we can understand how humans are wired and how people mm-hmm. respond, how they make decisions. And I don't think that that's bad to understand that. I don't think it's bad to align the way that you package a message or deliver a product or a service or ask for a donation that aligns with these things that we understand about how humans go about decision-making. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'll give you an example. A lot of time in the nonprofit space, we're talking about problems. And a lot of these problems are societal problems. And there's people that are just becoming so consumed with anxiety and like their mental health is suffering tremendously because of this constant like barragement of like, look at these problems. And so that's one question we ask is like, are we helping at that point or are we hurting? That's something that we have to kind of think about. But it's honestly, it's an issue that we discuss with our clients. I can't say that I have like a hard, fast answer to that, but it's something you have to be aware of because the point when you flip over from using principles of persuasion and turning that into like manipulation and getting people to do something that number one, they shouldn't do. Mm. Number one, they probably wouldn't do, or that could in some way leave them in a bad state of well-being, like using anger fundraising, like which a lot of political campaigns do. It's like mm-hmm. mudslinging and like, she said this and he said that, give money and we'll go and get them. I don't know if that's good. <laughs> I don't have a real simple answer there, but it's something I think a topic of conversation, especially once you start to move into this world of behavioral science, because it's a very powerful thing, but with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, I really appreciate that answer. And my executive coaching background is in something called energy leadership. And there are these seven styles, seven levels of leadership, and I've turned them into these seven styles of fundraising. And they are a relationship between two types of energy, catabolic energy and anabolic energy, catabolic energy being very like depleting, defeating that kind of quicksand paralysis comes with a lot of judgment, black and white thinking. That's where that sort of like anger lives, martyrdom lives, and then anabolic energy being a very fueling, healing flow state energy. And that's where helper energy is or joy and connection. So the way I think about this, win-win partnerships are up in anabolic energy. And so it's interesting what you were saying, because I think about this a lot. And I say this to clients a lot, like you can fundraise from any of those energy levels. You totally can fundraise from anger fundraising. You can't in my opinion, build a sustainable fundraising pipeline from that type of fundraising. That fundraising happens up in anabolic energy because if you're manipulating behavior with a short-term goal in mind, That's where you are likely to be maybe more irresponsible about how you're doing it. But if you have in your mind, what does it look like to bring in this donor as the first step in a long-term relationship with them? I think that's when you're going to use more of that, for me, those anabolic styles of fundraising. And I think that speaks to what you're saying too. Absolutely. Are you familiar with the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy, Jen Shang and Adrian Sargent? Okay. So like, this is like their whole central thesis, right? Yeah. Is that there's certain ways that we can do fundraising. Mm. Yes, it works. And yes, it kind of mm. does. It, it gets the short-term transaction cash register ringing, but it leaves the donor in a worse state of well-being, right? Mm. Or there's these other things that may not get it as much money today, but it's going to build these lifelong partners where mm. you actually have this donor for the lifetime and they will get way more money. Mm. But the problem 
is in the nonprofit space, we're so addicted to like the annual fund, direct response. I put a dollar in, I need $5 out this month, this year. And so we don't make decisions based on long-term. Everyone talks about lifetime value, lifetime value, but nobody yeah. makes decisions based on lifetime value. If yeah. they did, it would look a lot different. So that's kind of like the next level of a lot of our experimentation. We're starting to launch mm. because we've established some relationships over the last 10 years with some great mm. nonprofits where we've demonstrated like, oh, we can get some quick win kind of stuff and we can go and fix these things. But we're like, let's do some longitudinal studies. Mm. Let's run a year long experiment on how to fix the epidemic of retention, donor retention. Mm. The average retention rate for a first year donor across the industry is like 30%, something like that. It's worse these days. Yeah. It's like 20, 30%. Percent. Yeah. yeah. Why not fix that problem? Because then you don't have to acquire so many donors. You don't have to use this so many like shady tactics, like taping pennies on envelopes and just getting people to sign angry petitions so we can go and, you know. I do think it's a really important point. And I'll say like for folks listening, another question I ask clients a lot around this is like, would you write that as you think about going back and having this conversation with that same donor in five years, right? Mm -hmm. Like what would you do if you knew that you were going to be fundraising for this organization from this donor in five years? And are you making decisions through that lens? Because I think that then starts to shift the way we think about that sort of urgency and one-year turnover. I also think in my experience that sometimes the obsession with donor acquisition versus retention has a fear component to it because it feels a lot more emotionally significant to be turned down by somebody who said yes before we like attribute fault to ourselves. Like they gave last year and then I did something wrong because they didn't give this year. I reached out to have a meeting and they ghosted me or there's all these like more charged experiences in the donor retention piece than in just the acquisition where we are sort of like invisible to the new people who don't join our thing. I think that's a piece of it too. And I think retention is essentially a middle problem. Yeah. This is controversial, but I'll say it because like both of us are kind of like consultants or agencies or whatever, right? So I wonder too, if it's the agencies that are doing this to a lot of nonprofits. Because you think about like, are we part of the problem? The way a lot a lot of agencies, especially like direct mail agencies, like they make a lot of money on direct mail acquisition. Let's go mail a bunch of people, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's like, in some sense, almost like easier to measure and manage than like trying to keep a donor through good customer mm-hmm. service and engagement and like feedback loops and like reporting on impact and stuff like that. And so I just wonder if we kind of perpetuate, well, you're going to lose 80% of your donors this year. So you mm-hmm. better go get some more of them donors. You know what I mean? Like, I just wonder if we're kind of, <laughs> part of that process is it's self-serving for agencies to operate that way. I ask my staff that, by the way, all the time. I said, look, this is not the business we're in. We're not in the business to go and like get our clients to have to go rely upon us. Our goal is to set the captives free. So what does that mm. look like? Well, first of all, what we're doing in year three should not look like what we're doing in year one, right? Mm. So we need to build capacity back into our client organization. I mean, that's why we started the Institute. The next mm. after Institute is like, look, let's go train them how to go do the things that we're doing for them now so that they don't need to do it again. Mm-hmm. And you know, the more that you empower, I mean, like your leadership coach, the more that you empower people to be successful in their careers and be effective, and the less you have to hang on to them, the more they want to hang on to you because they're still going to have problems in the future. They're going to look different, right? Mm-hmm. Just like I've got 16 year old and I've got an eight year old and some in between there, but my 16 year old's problems are different from my eight year old's problems, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm still both of their dads. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it doesn't kind of change the relationship, but the nature of the relationship changes, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really appreciate and respect your call in for the consultant community because I do think it is something that 
we need to look at. It's easy to get caught up in the scarcity mindset in the nonprofit sector, especially, you know, doing the work and we start to feel our own fears around, will there be enough clients if I don't sign? You know, I just signed up a woman to work with me one-on-one and she was like, can't I do like a 12-year contract with you for coaching and or a 12 month. And I was like, no, I was like, it doesn't mean we can't work together for 12 months, but my hope is that it wouldn't take you that long to get to where we're trying to go. And we'll revisit it then, but you should have choice every few months around whether or not you still want to work with me. And if there's a problem that it makes sense, or maybe you want a different coach at that point, or maybe right. you're ready to fly on your own for a while and then you'll come back later. And I have to ask myself that question all the time too. Like, yes, I have to build a business and pay my mortgage and all those things. But at the end of the day, I want to be making a positive impact on this sector. And right. I don't want anything that I do, my marketing, my sales strategies, any of those things to be harming organizations. And I've definitely done things that have harmed organizations as I've been trying to figure this out. And so I just do think it's work that I'd like to open a conversation around for the consultants in our space. So I really am grateful that you brought it up. Yep. Rule number one is like, do no harm, right? So yeah. that's, we're going to start there. Okay. What question am I not asking you that you wish I would ask you? Why is giving important? That's a question that I think about a lot. And the reason why I think it's important is because look at the modern world that we live in today, where there's like so much mass consumerism. And I'm trying to raise four kids in this world now mm. that's constantly just pelting them with all these like things that they should kind of get for themselves and to feed themselves and to go and experience for themselves. You know, it's just mm. all about me. You know what I mean? And mm. like, what I think is cool about fundraising and like nonprofit work and giving in particular, like the thing I love about for the donor is that like when we do fundraising, we're competing. It's like a David versus Goliath, right? Because mm -hmm. like we don't have the budgets of these big like billion trillion dollar consumer brand companies, right? that have unlimited budgets. But every once in a while we break through and we kind of reach somebody with a message that says, yes, you could go take everything that you have and spend it on your own wants, needs, and desires, or you can look to meet the wants, needs, and desires of somebody else or something else or cause that's bigger than just you. And I think that every time that happens, when a donor gives that gift, it's like a miracle. It feeds them and it like, actually it does good for the donor. So the reason why I'm so focus on like trying to optimize giving and like getting more people to experience that is because I think it's better for society. I agree so much with that. And I think that we talk of often about fundraising being a means to the end, the end being the program impact. And necessary evil, right? Yeah, but I think, right, exactly. But I actually think the movement of money in the way that you described is such a powerful, important element of society, the decision to invest yeah. your funds in something you care about, the way it builds our identity and belonging and changes us every time we do it. And so my hope is that fundraisers feel proud to be the stewards of that experience, that it's not just about how much money they're raising, but that they're giving people every day the opportunity to change how they see themselves, how they see their community, the impact they can have on their community. And it's ultimately going to make them more generous in all the ways we are generous humans in our lives because we're connected to nonprofits and organizations and donating in these different ways. Yeah, couldn't agree more.
So tell everyone where they can find you, how they can learn more about the work at Next After. Where do you want to send folks? The easiest place is probably just go to nextafter.com. All of our research is there, all the experiments, all the studies, like all the training and free resources and stuff. It's all available there. If you can spell Kachuriak, which I'm guessing most people can't, you could find me on LinkedIn, but probably just start with nextafter.com. Awesome. And we'll put those links below. And thank you so much for this incredible conversation today. Yeah, it was great. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Ooh, could you feel the energy in that interview? We are both clearly riled up about this. And there are so many takeaways from this conversation, but here are the top things that I'm double clicking on. Number one, what happens when we take the mantle of expert out of fundraising? I think it's a big increase in humility and empathy. The last thing I ever want is for any of the advice on these shows to make you feel more unready or unsure of yourself as a fundraiser. Great fundraising isn't about expertise. It's about willingness to try, test, fail, learn, and listen. Number two, are your marketing and fundraising teams working in tandem? The best bang for your budget buck comes from the optimization of both sides of the equation through collaboration. Number three. A-B testing is a great way to acquire meaningful marketing metrics. Try introducing alternative content and prompts to see how campaigns trend in terms of open rates, click-through rates, etc. Number four, are you afraid that testing might reveal failures in your marketing strategy or fundraising strategy and tactics? It might, and that's actually a good thing. The marketplace is changing all the time. Number five, Feelings of fear and scarcity are what make us afraid to be bold and measure for results, but we can never improve if we're afraid to look at the numbers. Okay, there are so many more takeaways and tips inside this episode, so head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Tim and Next After. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.